his shirt off. Devin, you might be wondering, as I imagine, I mean, I imagine the audience has already figured it out, but you, Devin, might be wondering, why did I, Amber Autumn, just open this episode with Mickey with his shirt off? Well, the answer is, Devin, um, that's basically one of the only things that I know about Kingdom Hearts. And last time we did the Dark Universe episode, we did a cold open of you talking about Kingdom Hearts. And so I'm trying to follow in your footsteps. In Kingdom Hearts, you can fall into the world that never was, and you can also fall into the land that fell to darkness, which is an unending pit of despair and blackness that will slowly sap the life from you. And I now know how characters who fall in that feel, because we've recorded an episode about Kingdom Hearts, and we've been friends for years, and the only thing you know is Mickey shirtless? Here's the thing. We have talked about Kingdom Hearts many times on this channel. I understand that. This channel, Jesus, this podcast. I understand that. I can't retain fucking any of it. Like, you say shit about Kingdom Hearts, about Heartlesses and Xehanorts and Riku and Sora, and I hear it all, and in the moment I understand it, um, but it just doesn't fit in my brain such that a week later I have any understanding of what you talked about. Um, and also I'm pretty sure our Kingdom Hearts episode was lost. So in, in canon, I didn't, I didn't learn anything about it, you know? It's just so weird because Mickey shirtless, that's just standard Mickey. He only shows up like that in the end of Kingdom Hearts 1. He spends the majority of Kingdom Hearts in like a fun Final Fantasy outfit. I mean, it's not the most important thing that happens in the series, but it is the thing that Innuendo Studios mentions one time in a video essay that I've watched a hundred times, so, you know. Audience, I have notes, and I'm so derailed by this cold open, I'm I'm truly baffled. <laughs> I don't know how to move forward. Amber, can you say the name and pitch of the podcast while I compose myself? I think that's a great idea. Um... Well, this is this podcast is called Original Podcast Do Not Steal. I'm shocked you needed me to explain that to you because that is, you know, the title's right there. But I understand. We can move past that together, you and I. This is a weekly podcast in which every Friday, once a week, Devin and I, um, uh, I, Amber Autumn, she, her, and then Prince Devin, he, him, my co-host, we take um, a franchise, an intellectual property, and we make an original character in that property, usually. Although things are going to be a little bit different today, because today, as the conclusion to our Halloween scarathon um, of extremely spooky content, we are going to be vi- revisiting um, an old—I don't know—that is a fan favorite episode, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's one of our favorite episodes that we've ever done. We're really attached to—we did a, an episode way, way back, like a year ago, on the failed Universal Studios Dark Universe. The, the cinematic universe that Universal Studios tried to do after the Avengers where they had they took all of the Universal movie monsters, you know, your Draculas, your mummies, your Frankensteins, and they tried to um, make a cinematic universe out of them. And then they got through like a movie and nobody liked it and the whole thing crashed and burned and they didn't make any more after that. And so we did a How We Do uh, episode which is we talked through how we would have handled a dark universe. And it was the best uh, idea that anyone has ever come up with. We were hailed as geniuses. Um, Universal hired us immediately. 
and we and then uh, our hubris was too strong and when they sat us in the director chair we didn't even finish the fucking movie so you know what tom cruise i guess you beat us at that you finished your movie and that is what happened yes and now i do the part where i ask you a question and then we talk about the thing so the question we got to be parasocial for a minute we do so the question, I want everyone's heart to be broken when I cheat on my wife and get fired from the company I start. Okay, all right. For the record, while we're recording this, the um, we're recording this on the day that the, the, the Try Guys Ned thing happened. So it's going to be extremely dated when the episode airs in a month, but this is what we have for now. Just like every episode we've ever made. <laughs> so here's the question, Amber. Speaking of spooky things, dead things, what? is a franchise you don't want to come back. You don't want another installment. You want it to be over finito forever. Like of our podcast or like No, like in the world. Like wh- Oh, like what's a what's a what's a podcast I wouldn't want to get any re- any any further episodes or revivals on. Well, it doesn't have to be a podcast, but like, you know, just any or, show. Yeah, sorry, just a, a a a thing. I don't I don't listen to podcasts. There's a lot of good answers to this question. I really have a hard time coming up with a better answer than Babylon 5, which is funny because I like think that like like they're 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 doing a Babylon 5 reboot as we speak. Like that's they happening are. on the CW and I am excited about that. I I it's like sort of against the spirit of the question that way, but like Babylon 5 is a show that had such a specific enclosed story to tell and it like told that story over the course of five seasons and there's a beginning and an ending and the beginning foreshadows the ending in really clear and specific ways and so like I'm okay with doing like like a reboot is exciting to me but I would I would never want to see like a sequel to Babylon 5 you know what I mean like it like like the ending is so conclusive and so perfect to me. Um, does that does that sort of is that does that still work? Does that still apply for that question? Yeah, I'll take it. What about you? Me? Oh, this is very easy. It's Silent Hill, one hundred percent, one hundred and ten percent. Literally, anytime I see a tweet about a new Silent Hill or people wanting a new Silent Hill or anything, I don't even retweet in the traditional sense. I just type out the tweet I made once and then I tweet it again, which is, please, for the love of God, let the bloated, festering corpse of Silent Hill lay dead. It's fine. (laughs) We have two genre groundbreaking defining games for the subgenre of survival horror. Three has one of my favorite, if not my favorite, horror protagonist in video games and Heather Mason's. It's fine. Silent Hill 2 is one of the greatest horror stories ever told, point-baked, period, regardless of medium. Regardless of medium, it's fine. I don't need any more, and every time we've added more, it's gotten worse. 4 is okay, but after that, they're all terrible. They're all bad and not good. It's fine. Let it go. Let it die. I have mixed feelings about PT as it is, but it's fine. We don't... We have great. You don't you don't have to do it again. We did it. We did the thing. Everyone go home. Everyone go home. We did it. Wow. Audience, don't you feel so much uh, parasocially closer to us now? Uh, we all learned something today. Don't you guys feel great and like you know us? Don't you want to contribute to our Patreon that we definitely have? Give us money. Like Dracula. Mmm. <laughs> money. Blood. Your time. So, the Dark Universe... And I, neither of us have watched these movies. I, I still haven't seen The Mummy. Have you seen The Mummy yet? Has, so, there, has there been any change? 
I can take this opening if you want, because I have a lot of things to say. Oh, if you've got a lot to say, go go for it. Okay, cool. So, this is our first proper revisit episode, and we set that up a while ago, and the purpose of the revisit episode is a fold. One, it's when we do these episodes, we are doing a sketch. Now, we're going to add another layer, turn down the opacity on that sketch, do some line work, maybe some flat colors, maybe a little bit of shading. I draw pictures if you didn't know. So, we're going to you know, further fully out these characters, give them some more flesh, some more dimensionality, and also make new sketches to really expand the world. But the other purpose of Revisit Episodes is to revisit media, to see if your relationship to it has changed over the passage of time that is interspersed with when the episodes were released. And I have revisited the original Universal Monsters. I have a new affinity for them. I've watched some video essays. Shout out Matt Draper. He has a goddamn fantastic video essay. I think you should all watch. If you haven't, just type in Matt Draper Universal Monsters. Great videos. I kind of think we missed the bag when you compare what we have with the original stuff. But I also think that is perfectly okay because... As I've said every time we cover mythology on this podcast, I bring up the Neil Gaiman quote, the power is in adaptability, in the retelling. Adaptation is a necessity for survival. It is not a byproduct. Adapt or die, as they say. So the fact that ours doesn't super gel with the original message is great. It's part of it. And there are some ways in which it fascinatingly does gel with the original message of these movies. So... I really want to talk about Bride of Frankenstein. I'm going to save that for the end. But I want to talk about the Universal Monsters, the classic era, okay. which starts from 1931 to 1956 and inc- incorporates 41 films. That's a lot. That's more films than I expected to be there. Yeah, it's a lot of films. So these movies are all gothic horror, right? They're about... longing and strange attraction, an abjuration, something that goes against the status quo. These movies, when viewed through a queer context, are fascinating and part of what makes them so interesting in queer spaces and queer cinema, because to be queer is simply to go against the dominant status quo. It is to be different. That is what the word means. Right. And so with these movies... The queer is the monster. They are the thing that goes against the societal norm, and society very often rises up to kill them. Gilman dies at the end. Frankenstein dies at the end. So on and etc. all the way down. Right, right. And in a queer space, it's hard to not look at this world, this state we live in, where the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and then we're like, ooh, gay marriage! We're coming to get you next! And you blacks! just feels appropriate. And a thing that's particularly fascinating about that is within our pitch, we have the monster split down the middle. And who was our big bad? Dracula and the mummy, who we made the most queer. Our Dracula is gender fluid. And Frankenstein and his wife are the most heteronormative relationship. And we have them kill them at the end. Even we did it. And we're two gay people. I think that's fascinating. It's true. I think about like... Like, Shape of Water, right? Which is, like, like it's a Gilman story, and it is built out of this, like, set of, um, like, cultural ideas that get instilled into 
um, into monsters, right? Women are monster fuckers. Not like, you know, not, not, not in like a way where literally all women are attracted to monsters across the board, but in the sense of like monstrosity gets coded with with queerness, with otherness, with like all of these traits that in like deviancy get like have an appeal to women. And like that's like the thing that makes um uh Shape of Water tick as a Yeah, no, it is it is interesting that we just like we just went into that, like like the the long history of like queer coding monsters and we were like, yeah, it would be hot to see Dracula and the mummy fuck. Um, we would like to see that because, you know, monsters and what forth. So, talking about the differences, and it's more than just, like, a mythology in broad terms. It's literal text, because there's the classic era, which has these queer-coded themes. And they fumble the bag more than almost all of the times. It's a little promare. What are you going to do? It's literally the 30s and the 50s. But then there's the... Christopher Reed, not Christopher Reed, Christopher Waugh, no, Christopher Saruman, the Hammer era, which was 50s to the 70s, and most of the appeal with that was in color. It's in a British sensibility, but also in, we can have rated R movies, we can show gore and nipples and things. Then there is, in the 90s, the Columbia era, short-lived, and those were highbrow art pieces. Their sell was, we're doing the books, we're making an adaptation. Not that lowbrow trite then in the aughts you get the brendan fraser the mummy version which turned it into indiana jones s action and then there's the failed universal thing that we rebooted and made good so the fact that ours is different is not just part of mythology enduring it's literally part of the dna of universal monsters so i want to talk about the wolfman for a second and we'll talk Absolutely. about the invisible man when i do my pitch so for the Wolfman, particularly about differences, is that the original Wolfman was written by Curtis Siomak, a German-American immigrant who left Germany in the 30s <laughs> and then wrote a movie about a man who has to hide his true nature, otherwise he will be persecuted and murdered for the circumstances of his birth. And the reveal of that is in a pentagram that appears on his hand that's eerily similar to a Star of David. So we kind of took the Wolfman, a story about a man escaping German persecution, and went, what if he's an asshole? And I don't think we're super, I think it's fine we did that, we didn't know at the time. But I just yeah. felt wrong to not bring that up here. Yeah, that's good. That's a good note. I did not know that about the history of that character. See, maybe it would be useful sometimes for me to do any fucking research before recording these episodes at all. It doesn't mean I'm gonna, but uh, isn't it a nice thing to think about? But yeah, I think that's most of my big overall Universal Monsters spiel before I get into the hyper-specifics of Bride of Frankenstein, because, ah, oh, Chef's Kiss, what a beautiful movie. I've talked a lot. Would you like any airspace? Do we want to say that we want to change our take on these characters based on this information, or are we like just like noting this and being like, well, that's interesting, moving on? In my mind, no, because the fact that it's different is important, and I very much like what we have. If you, if anything I've said over the course of this, like, picks your brain and you'd like to redo something, I'm also fine with that. I will say, I have a scene for Invisible Man, a thing I want to say about him. I have a scene, in a very broad sense, for The Mummy. I have a thing I want to say about Dracula. I have a whole pitch for Wolfman, so I don't really want to change what we have, because it's very important to my pitch. And I do have, like, a 
pitch for new characters at the end. That's just information I wanted you to have before I move forward. I think that I would like to react in response to your pitches if you already have things that you're excited about then. Okay, cool. Then we'll... Yeah, that'll do that. But before we get to that, I really want to talk about Bride of Frankenstein because director James Wales, the queer coded in that movie, cannot and should not be overlooked because he was one of the few out-and-out, just openly homosexual directors in Hollywood at the time. So I'm not reaching for it. It's who the man is. Yeah. The tagline for the original Christopher Reed Superman movie is you will believe a man can fly and when I watched Dark Crystal Age of Resistance I finished it and I said oh the tagline for this series should have believed should have been you will believe Muppets can make you cry that Hmm. again but for Bride of Frankenstein because what a profound movie where the man in the dumb Frankenstein costume is moved to tears, and so too am I. It is a heart-wrenching tragedy. It's not a horror. It's it's insanely good. Yeah, no, it's... Like, honestly, like, fewer of these movies than you'd expect are horror movies. And Frankenstein... I mean, like, it's gothic horror textbook, but, uh, yeah, uh, the, 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 like, Bride especially, like... The horror element is much lighter than the tragedy element. And I want to talk about how the Christian overtones are not by accident. They are very loud. There's crosses. There's Jesus. The blind man's faith is a part of it. The fact that Frankenstein himself is not an antichrist. He is a reverse Christ. Christ is life, death, life. Frankenstein's monster is death, life, death. And I think that's interesting, especially compared to Gilman, because with Gilman, Frankenstein predisposes that God is correct, and he exists as a satire of people's religion, and their failure to be Christ-like is what makes them kill him, right? With Gilman, that's a harder sci-fi. The point is that Gilman is an aberration from the evolutionary chain of man, and it really makes us question how much we know. There's a line said by the archaeologist who ends up killing him at the end, which is like, we know about as much as the water as we know is space, and we've only just begun to touch the murky depths. Right, right, right. So I just wanted to bring that up. Um, But with Frankenstein, what I think is the most heartbreaking thing about that scene, the true tragedy of it, is his relationship with the blind man. And I've talked a lot about these movies being queer-coded, But Frankenstein is a pansexual icon, hashtag trademark, and by the end of this, I think I can prove it to all of you doubting me in the audience. Because... And also in your your co-host. With the blind man, his first friend, the person who, because he is blind, can only experience the monster as a human being. It's his humanity, and that scene is... Also, I'm going to talk about Bride of Frankenstein. The title is a double entendre, which I wanted to do a French joke because I'm about to say the blind man teaches Frankenstein joie de vivre, joy to life. They share drinks, they smoke, they feast, they laugh, they make merriment. He teaches the monster how to speak. And in giving him this intelligence, if we're analyzing this through the lens of a biblical story with this reverse Christ, with these overturns of Christianity, then the gift he has given the monster is the gift that was given to Eve. It's knowledge. Through knowledge and understanding, Frankenstein can understand the circumstances and 
truly his profound loneliness. But the thing that gets me more than that twist in the knife of the friend you have is the reason you can understand the circumstances of your existence being a tragedy. But it's when the blind man takes Frankenstein to the bed and the blind man weeps because he has a friend. He has a companion, someone to share his life with. And what is that if not love? And Frankenstein is moved because the blind man has gifted him knowledge and he too can understand. But then the world rips it away because the blind man is also ostracized from society. So when the people come in, they rip him away from Frankenstein. And now, this is where I'm going to try to defend the pansexual thing. So there are two doctors in this movie. There's Dr. Frankenstein, the one we're all familiar with. And there's Dr. I don't remember his name. For the purposes of this video, he shall be called Dr. Loomis. But when the monster approaches Loomis and asks for a companion, it's Loomis who throws out the idea of woman. And when Frankenstein repeats it, he goes, woman, friend, bride, woman, what's that? Bride, afterthought, the focus, the line he spends the most time on is friend. And that's the word. That's what he was taught by the blind man. Just someone to share your life with. Companionship that is not based on physical attraction, but emotional intimacy. The friendship is the most important part to Frankenstein. That's what he wants with this bride. He's chasing what he had with the blind man. Pansexual icon. Shout out to you, Frankenstein. The name of the doctor is Pretorius, by the way. Oh, thank you for that. The first half of that was a, was a really good read. I'm... I don't know that I want to follow you on all of that, meaning he's a pansexual icon, but, you know, um, uh, that's because I, I hate gay people, and I don't want them in any of my movies. Fair enough. I also hate the gay people. I also, real quick, want to talk about how we kind of missed the fucking bag on our, <laughs> on our Frankenstein and Bride of Relationship, because the other part of the tragedy is she fucking hates him. That's true. She, she sees the bride meant solely for her, and she lets out a primal, guttural scream of terror and fright because she also hates this thing. And God, the last line the monster has is he looks to Dr. Loomis. I forgot his name. I'm sorry. Pretorius? Yeah. And he says, we belong dead. And then he pulls down the thing and the entire castle collapses because monster frankenstein let dr frankenstein get back to his wife the heterosexual thing so like that's a redemption arc so you know like i said a little promary they, they, they fumbled their back because like you know 50s but that's most of what i wanted to say about bride of frankenstein if we'd like to get into the other bit of it it's it's tough i want to like like, all of the things you're saying are basically just, like, here are ways that we got our takes wrong. Here are ways that our takes don't match up with the original, which is really useful. And it really makes me want to say, it really makes me want to come up with ways to tweak our characters to make them more nuanced, to make them more in line with these versions of the characters. But it also is, like, it's a direct contradiction in a lot of places. So trying to figure out how we have, like, these two characters who we describe as being very much in love and as being, like, sort of at some point the de facto, de facto protagonists of our, like, storyline. I hope that everyone who is listening to this, um, went, like, listened to our original, like, remembers what we talked about. These two were, like, the sympathetic monster characters. The, the structure of our original pitch 
uh, we started with a big Avenger-style crossover movie in which the, we, like, told it from the monster's perspective as the monsters were trying to, like, wreak havoc on the world. And then they win at the end of the movie, and it's like Dracula has succeeded in conquering the world, and then that fucking sucks. And then over the course of all of the individual movies that happen after that, we see the fallout of that. And we see how that was actually horrible because they're monsters. And Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein kind of became our de facto protagonists in that because they are like the most sympathetic characters, the the set of monsters that exist in the franchise. So a way to like keep that while having her hate him, um, uh, a way to like be able to to maintain both of those things at once. I'm perfectly fine with our just doing a different thing entirely. I, I like them as a happy couple. We could have them have like, you know, just marital problems that would exist. I'm kind of bored with that to be honest. Like I'm kind of, maybe I could make you feel a little better about my opening being like, we did it wrong, but that's fine. So I want to talk about the invisible man. Is that okay? Yeah, talk about the... Go for it. I'll allow so, it. <laughs> I love The Invisible Man. I love almost all of the movies. And yeah, you do. When I re-listened to that one, I feel like you kind of authoritatively came down and said The Invisible Man is about X. And while that is an argue about the version you like, what is it, 2019? It totally... I understand. It's probably something different in other versions. Yes, but that is textual throughout all of them because I can talk ad nauseum about the first one. The first one is a story of the corrosive effects that power have on the soul. The Invisible Man removes himself from humanity and it slowly drives him mad and you see the escalation of harmless pranks, mean-spirited things to by the end he is cackling, speaking about world domination. He's cursed himself. The second one is a whodunit. And fun fact about this, Return of the Invisible Man is the first horror role Vincent Price ever had. It's his entry to horror. Isn't that just a fun fact for everyone? That is a fun fact. But then the Invisible Woman, the third one, is a weird slapstick comedy. It has not aged. I don't get any of the jokes. I'm not from the 50s. But then the Invisible Man after that is an espionage thriller about the Invisible Man fighting Nazis. They really just can't pick one, huh? They can't. They can't at all. The Invisible Man can be what the fuck ever. So the fact that we are Invisible Man is just an asshole? (laughs) He's just a guy trying to be Grimdall Wormtongue? Fits in perfectly with what you do with the Invisible Man, which is what the fuck ever. Whatever you want him to be, yeah. Here's my little take on the invisible man to give him a little more depth than ours i think what you do is because the first invisible man is i want to say jack griffin but griffin is the last name most closely associated with the invisible man i think in our dark universe there is a jack griffin there is a griffin name this invisible man is not him this invisible man is just a guy and so the fact that he's trying and failing constantly to be a Grimdall worm tongue, insert himself into a position of power and be sneaky, it's because he's insecure and out being the real Invisible Man, air quotes. And the mini scene I have with him and Dracula is to really establish his trying and failing to be Grimdall worm tongue is the mummy is talking to her girlfriend Dracula mm-hmm. and the mummy's like, why do we keep him around? He sucks. Fuck this guy. And Dracula says something effectively. He amuses me. 
and then the Invisible Man is doing his little monkey dance, right, trying to whisper sweet nothings into Dracula's ear, but he's not good at it, and so he oversteps his boundaries and, like, let's slip, I'm manipulating you. And the entire time this conversation is going on, you'll cut back to Dracula vision, and ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. She can see his heart. She can see the outlines of his face. He's not invisible at all. It's funny. But when he lets slips, Dracula has to reinsert dominance, grabs him by the invisible neck, slams him into the wall, and says something to the effect of, Pets are amusing when they bark. You bark at my command. Do not bite the hand that feeds you, dog. And then puts the hand out so the Invisible Man kisses it. And that's just the scene I have between Dracula and the Invisible Man. Because as you have said, Iago... I regret to inform you that that's extremely hot. Yes, I knew you would say that. Yeah, but as I you know. once I'm said, so predictable. <laughs> as you once said on this podcast, I start from the bottom up and you start from the top down. Mm-hmm. So yeah, would you like me to keep uh, doing my mini pitch things, or would you like me to do my big Wolfman pitch, or do you have anything to say? Um, I feel like I should be taking these as we go. I feel like I should be. I feel like I should be responding to how we incorporate all these. I think this doesn't ask us for a lot of change in The Invisible Man. I think where we're coming down from is the original thing that we did is good. It works pretty well. Here's a thought about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I don't know if I like this thought yet, but I think it's an interesting enough idea that I want to say it out loud um, so I can roll it over in my brain. What if... Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, if we want to have them be like protagonists who get along, but we also want to incorporate her like immediate revulsion to him and like the way that plays out in the original, what if they're like best friends who are exes? What if they like clearly have a history together? Like they're divorced now, but they like clearly still really enjoy each other and like the fact that they have a lot of history reflects really well on them and they now have separate lives outside that maybe they even have like a kid together that could be fun um i don't know do i like that do i is that an interesting take on those two as characters oh this is gonna sound insulting i don't mean it to be because i love the thing i'm about to bring up i feel like that's what would happen if you did like a more serious reboot of the monsters right like, if it took itself 10% more seriously. You will find throughout my pitches that none of my suggestions are radical change to what we did. I'm more interested in deepening it. And so I don't have the strong need to rework our pitch. I like them as just a happy couple. Okay. So if you find a thing you are particularly invested in, I am more than willing to listen but as it stands, I like the idea that they're a happy couple and it's a very Mr. Miracle, Big Barda situation and Frankenstein loves his big wife. Okay, that's fine. All right, cool. Yeah, and uh, we were both just, yes, good to the Invisible Man. We did it, we got it. Like, the Invisible Man is so fucking uncomplicated to me in our version. Like, intentionally, on purpose, in a fun way. I think that a lot of these are really depthful and interesting and I really like that the Invisible Man is a contrast to that. We can have some fun scenes. Like, he's engaging, he's compelling, um, but he's not, like, hard to parse. Yeah, he's easy to explain, but he's fun to watch. You just hire a charismatic voice. 
do we want to figure out a charismatic voice for him? I think we can do fan casting at the end. Okay. Onwards, then. Also, real quick, for the Invisible Man is... Because Jekyll Hyde is a part of this universe that we were just kind of like, a musical! My idea would be that you do a Jekyll Hyde espionage movie where someone stole his formula. And of course it's the fucking Invisible Man. That would just be fun. <laughs> of course it is. Invisible Man's a great like antagonist to slot into things. So here's my Dracula scene pitch, and I don't know how much I have to say about Dracula overall, but I do have this idea that I wanted to parse around with you. So Dracula and the mummy are in a relationship, right? Right. They bang. They regularly, and yes. This version of Dracula, not a good person. That's the point of Dracula untold. Absolutely. So if they have kinky sex... Okay, and so start with the mummy, don't start with Dracula. Devin. So the mummy is defined by profound loneliness, a deep longing. His want, from the original mummy from the 50s to 1999's mummy, is his wife. He's a lonely man. He just misses his wife, and he ignores the bodily autonomy of the woman who is the reincarnation because he has a different aspect, he has a different assumption for how the world works, being the morning and evening star of Egypt, right? Right. I don't think... These two would have, what are the words I'm trying to look for? So remember the ending of Fifty Shades of Grey? Yes, the first one, yeah. It's important that Edward Grey? <laughs> Fucking Christian Grey. The crack whore, yes. That he breaks the trust. I think there's a scene where they bone... And our Dracula is a shapeshifter, gender fluid shapeshifter. There's no way this shitlord Dracula doesn't at some point transform into the mummy's wife and it's really uncomfortable and it hurts the mummy. And it's like that scene in Steven Universe where Amethyst turns into Steven's mom and Greg is like, Amethyst, you know I hate it when you do that. But we make it a little more, oh, that feels bad. Is this a moment that happens because... Dracula's trying to be sweet, or is this a moment that's happening because Dracula's trying to be hurtful? I'm not too sure. I just, this was the moment I had, and I didn't have a lot before or after, just did in isolation. So, what were you feeling? How, how do you feel? This is your universe. I think this is a moment of Dracula trying to be sweet and fucking it up. Our Dracula is a bad person. Um, they are objectively the villain, and I really don't want to do the Thanos thing where I'm like, let's build up sympathy for this character who is objectively doing the wrong. Like, I want us to come down with the understanding that Dracula is bad. I also think it's interesting if we have Dracula, like, trying to hold on to this relationship with the mummy. I think that, like... The mummy is characterized by extreme loneliness, and our Dracula character, um, like, like the dynamic that they have is, like, last time we said two tops racing to the bottom, right? It's, it's, the dynamic they have is two people who have it all in the world, who, like, conquer the world in their first movie, and then the thing that they want from each other is to, like, be the person to to challenge that is to have the other one be the person in control and so i think 
to me, it seems that our version of Dracula is going to want to attempt vulnerability with the mummy. Like, outside of, of sex, our Dracula is going to find himself in a position where they have, like, so little in their life that they can be vulnerable with, that they have this, like, one other person who's, like, kind of on their level. They might want to try being vulnerable with her. And I think that it would be interesting to see Dracula attempting to, to like, do bonding with her and attempting to form a real genuine human connection and then seeing that attempt backfire seeing the mummy get hurt and seeing Dracula's first response to having caused that hurt be like really horrible. Like Dracula tries a thing. It doesn't go well. The mummy really responds badly. And then Dracula immediately gets super fucking defensive and, and withdrawn and like shitty and makes everything worse about the situation. Like you have Dracula tries the thing to be nice the mummy freaks out about it, and then Dracula's like, oh, you know what, I was just trying to fucking be nice, and you don't deserve this kind of thing anyway, and um, I'm gonna start off the conflict, which kicks off Act 2. You know? Yeah, that all makes sense to me. Do you want my mummy scene pitch? Yeah, do it. Okay, so, not a lot for the mummy. Because our thing about the mummy was the mummy's a very histrionic person with a different sensibility for how the world works, an aging rock star. Mm -hmm. And what I do with that, and this isn't even so much a scene, so much as like a opening act, not opening act, establishing shot, camera pans across the landscape so you have a spatial awareness understanding, right? Yeah. Yeah. The mummy would go back to Egypt and be like, this isn't. What, what the fuck is this? This isn't how I left it. And it would be just like that scene, one of my favorite scenes. Shout out to 2012 Ninja Turtles, my favorite animated version. I haven't seen Rise Of yet. Don't at me in the comments. It might be better. Haven't watched it. Don't know yet. But in that, there's a demon shredder. They, man, I'm not going to do this rant about the shredder. This episode's running long. But there's a demon shredder, and when he gets reborn, he goes, the world has changed in the eons since my passing. However... I will not change to meet its standards. The world will change to meet mine. And you just have the mummy do that? So when you go to Egypt, there's just <laughs> the mummy's chilling in the fucking pyramid <laughs> and people are not having a good time. And they're playing the opening song from Prince of Egypt because the mummy's like, I, why, why would I change who I am? I, I am the morning and evening star. What, the, what, what is this? You <laughs> make my pyramids. So that makes our mummy a very, like, stationary figure. Like, that makes our mummy, like, she hangs out in her pyramids. Like, she doesn't go anywhere, which kind of is a rough situation to build a movie out of because you really want a character with um, an active want in the world. Although most of these movies are about people stopping the mummy. So, like, these are movies about a group of evil figures having, like, taken over the world already, right? And that kind of makes her perfect as like, the evil overlord figure. Like, we have Dracula having sent the world into ruin already. Like, here's the whole world that's gone into flames. But the mummy is great for, like, this city lives in fear of her. Like, she has a domain, and everything is literally in the shadow of her temple. Maybe she, like, has people building big-ass statues of her. 
Yeah, I did imagine that Dracula and his council of darkness divvy up the world in sections, and the mummy's like, Egypt's mine. But, like, that's not even a discussion. They're like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Gilman just goes, I love you, Gilman. You're the best. Did we have anything else to say before I move on? Or do we feel like we need to spend more time here? I don't know that I have that much more on the mummy. We're at Wolfman now, right? We've talked about the others. Have we? We haven't done Gilman yet. I don't have much more to say than what we said in the original, and my Gilman is directly tied to my Wolfman, so they both get talked about. Then go for it. All right, cool. Uh, before I do that, have we settled on more dimensionality to Frankenstein and his bride? Because we've agreed to stay coarse, but like, what's the extra little line for that sketch? Okay, I have literally no idea why this idea is coming into my brain. Like, it's very strange to me that this thought is occurring to me, but I kind of, <laughs> I, um, uh, I think I want to, like, I want to make them detectives. Okay, bear with me. Wait, hold on. That's a ridiculous thing to say. Let me, let me explain. Um, you have these, like, characters who are, like, outcast by society, right? but who are the protagonists of our story who have seen the inside of the like council of evil big bads, um, but don't ultimately end up siding with them by the end, whose loyalties change around. And they have this like association with like, like romanticism in the like artistic movement sense, the like awe of like the things in the world that they cannot control and they've been, like, horribly abused by the world around them. And so, in my mind, these are characters who, like, want to do good in the world, but are, like, shunned by the world around them, who are, like, drawn to evil and darkness, and who are privileged by their ability to, like, have this extra information about the other characters. And to me... I hear all of those things and I think, oh, that's superheroes. That's soup. That's Batman. Um, uh, and I think that like, like, I, like the, the, the reason that thought occurs to me is that it like, like those skills combine in an interesting way to make those characters really well equipped to, um, handle problems in the dark and underbelly of society. And we could like see them, doing good for people i think it's i think it's stupid i think that's a stupid idea but no idea too stupid to say on the podcast yeah everyone saw i frankenstein right <laughs> uh that i uh, no but um not a soul i don't know anyone who saw fucking i frankenstein my man. ex in college i know saw it and because they were into there was a whole max landis thing happening at the time don't he, it doesn't it doesn't matter yeah, that guy's a douchebag. Remember that guy? I remember that guy. Remember and his that? dad killed two killed two kids and a stunt man. The... Get fucked. Okay, here's a thought, real quick. Yeah. Just for like a little a little something. So I feel a little not great about how I came down on the player characters for Monster Prom because to say they're devoid of character is a little not correct because they're 
vignettes, the way they are drawn to show how they are interacting in the areas you level up your stats, doing for a characterization. Vicky is not Oz. Oz is not Brian. Vicky is the Frankenstein's monster, and she's like a bit of a klutzy thrill seeker. What if our bride of Frankenstein likes the thrill, right? She's the big Barda. They're both doing the job, being the bitman. What if Frankenstein wants to be the at-home stay, I'm tired of the job, and his wife is constantly like, no, I got us another one, it's going to be great. And he's like, I, I, I booked us a bed and breakfast. We're sp- at a hole. That's so fucking cute. And also, it makes total sense for their vibes as characters in the original. She She's way higher energy than he is. Yeah, look at all that jittering she does as opposed to his slow lumbering ass. I, I think that totally having her be the high energy one and him being the low energy one, I definitely don't want it to trend into doing like the um like the, the you know, the nineties sitcom thing of the like dude at home with the mega hot wife, how did he do that? He's a man child thing. No, not that, just he he values a lazy Sunday reading a book and eating an English muffin that he baked. And she wants to go punch vampire thralls. And they get to help each other um, uh, see the beauty in each other's lives sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cute. That's adorable. I love that. We fucking did it. All right. So we're at the Wolfman. Audience, this podcast, this episode has run long, but we love our pitch in the original. And I'm about to apologize because all of those other things were like scenes and rough ideas. I knew this episode was going to go long. The minute you suggested it, I was like, this is a double length episode. Yeah. For Wolfman, I have a bordering on a how I'd do style pitch because he's the one I sat and thought about the most for some reason. Okay. And I want to start by saying my pitch looked very different before James Gunn released Peacemaker. And then I went, well, shit. I have to change a lot here, don't I? Thanks, James. Why, does it just, like, have a lot to do with Peacemaker? Yeah, it, like, Peacemaker came out, and I was like, this motherfucker, he, he read, he, this was my Wolfman pitch. So I've changed a few things. I just want to throw that out there in case anyone's like, hey, this sounds like Peacemaker. Yeah, I know, okay? (laughs) I, I am aware. So my Wolfman movie starts, and I don't have every scene mapped out. It will not be all this detailed, I promise everyone. My Wolfman movie starts with... Shots of nature, some predator-prey relationships, some foliage, some leaves growing, some things decaying, right? Circles in nature. Some indie movie-esque voiceover narration says, Growing up, my brother always told me there are two types of people in this world. And between the pauses, you see one kid on top of another kid punching him in the face, right? While the other kid is having the, Ah! Jimmy, stop! No! He's got the fists up. Devin, this sounds a lot like Peacemaker. Right? I, I was so upset when they started fighting in the pit. I was like, oh, fuck you, James. Come on, man. Let me have this. You made me cry. Stop. Anyways, my brother always taught me there were two types of people in this world. The people who eat and the people who stay hungry. Because our wolfman was a toxic masculinity thing, right? He wants to be an alpha. That has to come from somewhere. And my idea was, what if it comes from his older brother? And that's what I've done. That's my pitch. It's, I couldn't think of names, so it's Jimmy, the older brother, and Bimmy, the younger brother. And Jimmy yes, and Bimmy, okay. that 
That is the incorrect version of Jimmy and Billy from Double Dragons, but I'm terrible at names, audience. I was going to say that. (laughs) I love Double Dragons. But anyways, so you see their dad, right, drinking a beer, watching Legally Not Tucker Carlson, saying some sexist things, and you see the older brother Jimmy repeat the behavior, right, because it's learned behavior, that's how the shit works. And he's talking to his little brother, Bimmy, and he's like, yeah, man, no, you just, they're, they like sneak out of the house at night and they howl at the moon with their shirts off because they're crazy kids and they just want to feel something they're not getting at their home life because their dad sucks and their mom is functionally not there. He's like, yeah, man, you just got to be an alpha, bro. You got to be the top of the food chain. Otherwise you're a loser. And then Bimmy's like, I want to be, I want to be alpha too. And he's like, you can't be two alphas. Go. And he pushes him away. Go be an Omega. Doesn't say Beta. Does not say Beta. Pushes him away and says, go be an Omega. Because Jimmy wants a relationship with Bimmy. He wants his older brother. He wants his younger brother to be there, but he doesn't have the tools necessary to say these things because he's a toxic man. Cut to later, they're a little bit older, and Jimmy's like, fuck you, old man! I'll leave! And he grabs his stuff, he's putting on the thing, he's got the black eye, he's getting out of the house, and Bimmy's like, wait! No, don't go! I, I need you here! And Jimmy turns around, and he wants his brother to come with him. He wants to take Bimmy. But Bimmy says something like, I I need you! Like, I, like can I come? Like, asks in not a Chad way, right? And Jimmy gets pissed because he wants Bimmy to come, but he wants him to get it and he doesn't get it. And he pushes his brother away again. He's like, fuck, be an Omega. Be by yourself. Leaves. Flash cut to the future. Bimmy has found a pretty reasonable life for himself. He's, He's a pretty okay guy. He's got a wife. He's got some kids. He's got some views he hasn't processed, some trauma that's unprocessed, some things he's internalized unknowingly because he always looked up to his older brother Bimmy and and his brother Jimmy. And Jimmy was off doing, legally not, the opening from Clive Barker's Hellraiser, but replace Hellbox with getting lycanthropy. Jimmy comes back into Bimmy's life. You meet him. The house is like kind of broken into maybe. Bimmy's like, well, you, you stay back, wife and kids. I have to go investigate this and be a big tough man. You see Jimmy sitting on their couch eating Cheetos. His top button is unbuttoned because he's a fucking douchebag. He's got a leather jacket and a red shirt because he's a fucking douchebag. And he's like, hey, bro, how's it going? Ah, I'm from Staten Island for some fucking reason. Jimmy! And they hug, they embrace. But now, Jimmy hasn't done anything to process his... Arduous is the wrong word. His gross views, right? And now he has lycanthropy. So nothing has been done to assuage them. It's all been reinforced. And his new outlook is we're just animals we just hide it with clothes and laws man i'm just i'm living on instinct it's not my fault whatever i do it's all pheromones baby a giant asshole sure right. and the thing he's always wanted was his little brother to get it and now he thinks he, like you're older you'll finally get it but he doesn't and he keeps doing a bunch of shitty things he keeps pushing him around undermining him in front of the kid he definitely fucks his wife, and he's like, it's all pheromones, man. I can't help it that she wants me. Look at me. I'm a douchebag. I definitely have a scene where Bimmy's son comes in. He's like, I got bullied at school. And Bimmy's like, oh, well, you know, just, like, try to talk it out. And blah, 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 blah. And then he leaves, and then Jimmy walks into scene. scene. It's shot very 80s movie, and Jimmy's like, hey, man, a kid ever say something to you? 
Let's say he'll punch his fucking eye out. And if he's stupid enough to keep coming, pulls out a switchblade. You hit him with this. And if he comes after that, that's his own fucking fault. He's stupid. Don't listen to your dad. He sucks. Something happens. Big climax. And Jimmy's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you get it. I'm, what is standing in the way of you getting? And then the light clicks. And he goes, oh, it's because you got a wife and kids. man. You can't be an Omega with a family. Duh. And then I throw them in the refrigerator because I'm a hack and a right, man. Uh-huh. And uh, at some point over the course of the movie, Jimmy, while trying to get his brother to get it, gave him like Anthropus is a werewolf. And once you've killed the wife and kids and he comes home to like his brother eating his wife with blood in his face, because I am doing gothic horror movies, right? And Jimmy's got a big sheet eating grin like, I did it! You can love me now! And I get my big act three fight between two giant werewolves and Bimmy fucking snaps he kills his brother rips his chest out eats his heart and when he does that jimmy turns back into a person and he's got the biggest shit eating grin on his face even though he's dead because his brother finally got it you killed me you're the alpha what i've always wanted and billy turns back into a human and just throws up just throws up crying sobbing can't handle it and so our pitch was you meet werewolf and he goes in and out of lycanthropy. And then the last movie, he's a werewolf all the time. And what I do now is the first werewolf we meet is Jimmy. But by the end of it, it's Bimmy. And you had to have watched the movie to understand why. And part of why he doesn't change back into a human is because then he's like, Dracula will know. But Dracula knows the whole time. Dracula just doesn't give a shit. But also it's a, if I turn back into a human, I have to face what I do. And that sounds very scary. What if I'm an animal the whole time? And there's some line Dracula has where it's like, I have heard the longer you stay in this shape, the harder it is to come back to the daylight. Try not to lose yourself to the beast. Now I want to talk about Gilman. Because our pitch for Gilman, love it. Very simple. The Chewbacca, the Groot. He helps the kid understand that their dad's trying their darndest. So I think that Wolfman and Gilman would have a very strong relationship. And most of it would come from Wolfman because Wolfman's like, oh, like Dracula and the mummy, like they they look like people. You, Gil, you and me, we're, we're animals. You get me repeating the past, right? Bimmy being like Jimmy, not understanding the relationship that they do or don't have and projecting a lot of things. And the header in the final act, I throw that kid that Gilman made his movie with, I throw him into a refrigerator too. Because that's Bimmy repeating Jimmy's fatal flaw, the thing that ultimately gets him killed in the end. Because he's like, oh, Gil, you don't, you don't want to be my family because you got this kid. I'll kill that kid. You, Gil! Gil! So it's like a final tragic descent into the thing that happened to him in the first place. Yeah. That's my werewolf. That's my little bit extra for Gilman um, thoughts, I guess. Shit, that's really good. Yes! I th- It's really good. It almost feels like an act one to me, the werewolf part. Like, it doesn't... I don't know. It's such... It's it's so... It's so origin story-y, you know? And, and... And... And don't get me wrong. There have been good origin stories in the world. There's been some... Some good origin story... Stuff that's happened. It's so... Uh, like a... Like a character, like a, a really good character backstory. Definitely a thing that I like would want to see happen in the in the first part of the movie, and then see that motivate 
the character into the rest of the story. Is that... Yeah, I will say that this is a movie that takes place after the crossover, but is a prequel to then explain what the, the new Wolfman we're dealing with. So you can have him do other things over the course of the other movies, and the thing where he kills Gil's friend happens in the final movie where our series ends. So I think you're kind of wanting, like, what some stuff Bimmy gets into after this movie happens, but before he kills Gil's best friend. Like, we have this really great um, uh, antagonist built in, in that, like, there's, in, in, in his brother, right? I think the actual thing I'm wondering here is, is we, no, yeah, the, 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 the actual question I have here is, is we, we skipped a whole bunch in that story you told, where we, like, have this stuff that happens in the first act, where Jimmy and Bimmy have their respective upbringings, they have their respective, like, things they say to each other and then they leave and we have this like conclusion um where we have this final conflict between them um but i would like to know what it is that happens in the middle that drives these two into each other what are the choices that they're making what are the things they're pursuing what's getting in their way what is in the lycanthropy boys world what does their day look like? Where are they? This is this is this is prequel stuff, right? This is before the conquering of the world. I don't know. That gives us a lot of like, like both time period and like genre stuff that we can play around with what we do there. Like this could be a fucking college movie with a dark gothic turn. This could be a little bit of a kids on bikes thing. This could be um like a dark academia whodunit. Um, uh, there's like a lot of different directions we could take it. Um, I actually really like the idea of doing a dark academia thing now that I'm thinking about it. It sort of is a genre that is prevalent, but sort of underrepresented, I think, in this set. Um, I think it could be fun. Okay, 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 wait, 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 which, which one's Jimmy and which one's Bimmy again? Jimmy is the shitty boy in the leather jacket. Bimmy is the beta cuck. I would love for us to do a story where Bimmy is, like, not just a nerd, but, like, possibly even uh, a, a, a librarian. Like, we, we have, like, a spooky haunted book storyline going on. Um, maybe we even get the Necronomicon in there just for fun. Who knows? But, like, we, we have a little bit of, like, a Giles from Buffy the Vampire situation where, like, he is, he's, he's the librarian figure. Um, he is dealing with this whole dark academia plotline. Um, maybe he like works at a university, is doing the bespectacled professor um, uh, Bruce Banner thing, whom has a wolf underneath, and then like the resolution of the storyline when he like ends up killing his brother gets to like get doubled down on in intensity because you get to have him like wearing the like nice uptight twee professor's jacket and, like, wire rim glasses as he kills his brother. Um, uh, and you get to, like, really establish the kind of person he is trying to move as far away from his backstory as possible, um, uh, only for, like, these events to, to bring him crushing back in, crashing back into it. Um, maybe the books he's even doing are, like, like some kind of, of, of attempted cure of lycanthropy that he's, like, pursuing, and, and his brother Jimmy doesn't like that. And in the end, he chooses not to go with the cure, like, as a result of, of, of the events. 
Do all of those make sense? Yeah, I liked that. Yeah, I, I feel this. I feel what you're saying. I like this little garnish you've added to my. I pitch. feel like I've been doing a really bad job participating in this episode, so I'm really, I really felt good about that contribution. I was like, "Ooh, I added something there." You did it. So, is that going through all of our monsters? Is there anything just like organically you would like to say that you'd like me re- to react to before we move on to like the other sketches we'd like to add to this? Oh, world? that shit! That you when you were like you were like, is there anything else that you want to say? And I was like, I want to write a Van Helsing character, but no, you were you were planning for that. Yeah, I have a rough idea for like our Van Helsing figures and the resistance backslash Helsing organization. We will come up with a good name if we ever, if enough people listen to this episode that we get to write a tabletop RPG setting that takes place in our legally not the dark universe. We'll come up with good names. It won't be Bimmy and Jimmy. I promise. Yeah. Okay. Then give me your pitches. Go. I'll start with the one we don't have to do anything on, but you brought up Giles already. Thank you for that. You're it's welcome. a good segue. I had an idea for a, a Giles character, a lore dump, who is like in the Helsing HQ. To Giles. There's He's this. So much more than that. I know. I love Giles, but it's a, it, that's the archetype people put in his brain, right? Because he has glasses and he says the exposition. So in the HQ, there would be a animatronic, a puppet figure who is a living book who is part of the wall who, because he is some sort of living book man, has all of the information. But the twist on it is he's also, like, been nuclear glued to the wall, so he kind of hates his job. So he's very sassy about it. Whenever they're like, hey, Necronama Bob, can we know what kills werewolves? He's like, oh, yeah, what else? Give me, like, I'm not going anywhere. I might as well. And then he opens himself up, finds the page, and is like, oh, silver bullets, that kills werewolves. It's very strange to be picturing Giles while you're speaking through all of that, um, because it's very out of character for him. Yeah, no, Giles just is like the idea of a man who knows thing about lore before it is any of, like, I'm actually taking Giles to inform this character. Is that, like, is, is, is that tied to any particular character in, like, the universal lore, or is this fully an OC? Yeah, this is fully an OC. I love the idea of a sentient book who is part of the wall, who is not particularly happy about the fact that he's a lore dump machine, but that's what he is. I kind of love that, yeah. Yeah, alright, so here is the idea I had, and it's very rough, for the Helsing figure is you do Helsing twin daughters. You got two twin sisters and they are the current heads of the Helsing household. No notes. Yes, God, please. And I was like, do I do the thing where they're functionally the same character? I know that's the thing Amber likes where you two characters you think of as one, or do you do the thing where they have very much opposite personalities and one is hot-headed and tempered and gets in trouble and the other one is a bookworm who cares about the lore of the family business i actually am drawn more towards the second option in this instance like we've done the first one a couple times on the show before all right so yeah we do the second one in which case if we're going opposite directions with them what if we have like one of them be like the field agent figure and then the other one be no, okay, they're both field agents. What if one of them is, like, our action hero Helsing, and the other one is our, like, subterfuge Helsing? Like, 
Like, one of them does the big fights and vampire slaying, and the other one does the information gathering and sneaking around. And the one who does all the information gathering and sneaking around always really wants to use the fact that they're twins to, like, do big, like, disguise plans. And the one who is the action hero figure doesn't ever really have time for it and keeps fucking it up. Uh, and the subterfuge one keeps getting pissed about it. I like this niche. I enjoy this. So here's a question. Did you have any pitch? Because I have another vague, like, not even an idea, just a thing I'd like to say. So, like, do you have anything to vamp on while I think if I can think more about that? I think that I would love to have a character. I'm thinking about, like, I'm thinking about Gilman. And, like, every one of those movies, like, you have, like, the, the 1940s, blonde hair blue-eyed boat captain whomst is there to save the pretty ladies from the big evil monster right like the muscular leading man um guy and like that archetype is so like weird and dated and bad and also like the 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 subversion of that archetype um where you have that guy but he's just a shitty guy is like so played out like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast was that guy, right? And so I think I would love to have that guy, but find like some third angle where we don't play it straight on, um, but we also don't make him just like, like straightforwardly stupid or evil. Like what if you have a character who is that guy, but is like an actor, like, a guy who's, like, clearly playing a role and maybe, like, has some kind of, like, a relationship with Gil to, like, be this figure for the town. Like, this is probably an ancillary character to an ancillary character, but I love the idea that Groot has this, like, that that, that Gilman has this regular relationship with this guy who sometimes will, like, show up to performatively chase him off into the water to make all the townspeople feel safe again. Like, he'll do that, and then we'll, like, see them rendezvous later to, like, exchange, like, a little bit of money. Like, Gil will pay the guy some money, and the guy's like, all right, you know, see you see you around next time, huh? Pleasure doing business with you. I love Dragonheart. I wouldn't know. We watched the third one together. But it was definitely bad, and we were definitely riffing over the whole thing. <laughs> I don't remember anything about it. I just remember <laughs> that we watched it. But yeah, I would like to take a moment to thank you. Because my nothing pitch was going to be me going, so on the original Gilman, <laughs> there's a scientist and an archaeologist and the woman. And there's a love triangle that Gil interrupts. And I really want to do something with those three, but I had no ideas. And you had something. So thank you. Thank you for using the Gilman supporting cast that I couldn't think of anything I do for. think, like, recurring, like, imperiled woman is a, is a good place to start. Because imperiled woman shows up in fucking all of these movies. And I think it would be good to have an imperiled woman um, uh, character on standby. Is she our Agent Coulson? I'm really intrigued by all of the words that you just said. Please say more. <laughs> I, I don't know that I had more other than is she our Agent Coulson? <laughs> but like, yeah, she she shows up and is like, I'm I'm spitballing ideas in real time here, baby. She shows up and is like, ah! classic scream queen from the 50s and 30s and then Gilman helps and she jots that down Gilman could be good does the same thing with Dracula Dracula's like I don't give a shit 
Dracula Nogo <laughs> cannot make my Dark Avengers. Vicky and Frankie, they helped me out. Wolfman equal asshole. Like exes I have. Do not date Wolfman. Do not pick up phone for Wolfman. Wolfman is calling. Do not pick up phone. We'll have to kick out. God damn it. I had sex with Jimmy again. Fuck. This, I don't know if this rift is good. I've just kept going. Amber, take no, the No, I mic. love this. Okay, so the, the, the like traditional thing that you do with like the woman in peril archetype when you're trying to modernize it is you turn her into like a girl boss badass, right? And I don't, listen, I don't have a problem with making girl, girl boss badasses. I don't. But I think it's like more interesting to have a character who like keeps ending up in the center of bad shit. Like you have this, this, this one woman who is like, a pretty ordinary woman, but like by chance and circumstance ends up being genuinely imperiled, not doing the like subversive badass thing. Like she's a woman, like she's not exceptionally helpless by virtue of being a woman. Um, and probably she doesn't like get rescued, but you know, like she's a horror movie protagonist. Horrible things are happening to her. She doesn't like it. She would prefer that they not be happening. And it happens to her multiple times. And as a response to that, she like comes up with this list of people and yeah, then manages to, to, to assemble the Avengers in that way. I kind of love that. What's her name? I want her to have a name. I had Jimmy and Bimmy. You think I'm good with a name, dog? Oh, you're right. I want to say Veronica. I feel like we have a Veronica. Okay, well, we'll keep V's and we'll call her Virginia. Oh, fuck, I can't remember. What's uh, what's the name of Carnilla's girlfriend? It's Virginia. That, the okay, name is yeah, Virginia. Virginia. Fuck it. All right, we did it. Virginia, ba sweet Virginia. Bow, bow, bow. Yeah, are there any other side characters that we'd like to sketch out? Or do we have any other ideas? Or how, how are you feeling? How are you feeling now? I want to sketch out Dr. Vincent Frankenstein. Ooh. Oh, this is going to be my cold open, but I forgot about it, so I don't have a pitch, but... Have you ever seen Penny Dreadful? No. It's pretty decent. I like the first season. But in isolation, it has what is quite possibly my favorite single line between Monster and Doctor. Because Penny Dreadful does the book Frankenstein. He's a poet beset by his own loneliness who's constantly complaining and post it to Tumblr, you foppish fuck. But... The monster grabs the doctor by the collar and he goes, remember, what is Frankenstein without his monster? And he pushes him away and I go, that's, yeah, that's the culmination of your life's work. And also, when people say Frankenstein, they don't mean you, doctor, they mean the monster. I, I fucking love, I just love that line. It's just one of my favorite lines from a show and I just wanted to talk about it. Really it's good. great. It's great. So, so like maybe our Frankenstein is a simp for, like, the monster. I, I want the relationship to be a little frictional. Immediate thought but is I do pageant mom. Define your term a little bit there for me. How do I want to describe this? I, th I'm a, I think I'm going to just act out the archetypical pageant mom in my head. But my daughter is so talented. She's so special. She can wear so much makeup. She can dance okay. around so much. And no, honey, we can't go to preschool right now. I need you to live out mommy's dream of being the special girl on stage. Kind of like that. Totally. Totally. Okay. Here's a question I have. Yeah. On the spectrum of 
mad scientist to sinister man, where would you like our take on the doctor to be? I would like to lean into mad scientist. I really like mad scientist, Dr. Frankenstein. I think that mad scientist is a really helpful archetype for us to have in this in this setup. Okay, then I think a way to do mad scientist and pageant mom is that and to add dimensionality to it is there is a love there. The doctor does love his monster, but I think in the that he calls it his monster, there's a robbing of personhood here. I love you because you're my accomplishment before I think of you as a three-dimensional human being first, right? Yeah. And so then um, Frankenstein gets to yes, have daddy issues. following the great Western tradition of daddy issues. Here's a question for the text of our world. Is our doctor making other things? Did he stop? I think absolutely he's making more things um i think frankenstein and the bride are his greatest creations and we kind of just don't touch the like vaguely incestuous subtext of giving frankenstein daddy issues about this guy who made both him and his wife we don't it's don't don't worry about it but absolutely i think that adds so much to the world to be able to have a mad scientist sitting around um adding bullshit into the mix regularly adding little tools to help move the plot forward adding conflict having things go wrong with his with his creations his machines i would love like he's a he's a biologist right and also an electrician and i think having an emphasis on flesh in his work is going to help it like really both like lean into the the horror element and uh, like stay true to the character and keep it feeling like mad science. Like the 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 good Doctor Frankenstein is arming the 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 Van Helsing twins with their like weaponry to go on a big fight or whatever, right? Uh, and he's like giving them like a lightning gun, right? But like the way that it's generating lightning is through like like neurosynapses, right? It's got like a brain stretched out over the length of the gun. Yeah. That's good. No notes. Here's my one idea that I have. It's Dr. Phasma? Pretorius. Dr. Pretorius. So here's my idea. Is that if the bride and Frankenstein are the pinnacle of his work, I think you do that queer-coded thing that exists in the original Bride of Frankenstein, and it's the reason they are super special awesome is because they were a collaborative effort between Dr. Frankenstein and Fatoria. And Fatoria has died. So now our good Dr. Frankenstein is constantly chasing that thing, and he can't do it without his partner. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Or we just say it because we can do whatever the fuck we want. But that's right. My it's definitely idea. sub. There is, there is a subtext to the original about a, an amount of queerness going on there. And yeah, we can, we can canonize that. Yeah, I love that. I love, I think that makes so much sense. We can have Pretorius die and that like early on and that can be an inciting incident for a whole load of things. So like there becomes a schism between Frankenstein and Dracula. My thought is Dracula brings in Frankenstein, the doctor to be like, make me an army of undead masses at my beck and call. And that's when Vicky and Frank, you're like, wait a minute. Is this guy who's screaming about basically the world and eternal darkness a bad guy? Because he brought our dad in. Our dad sucks, right? Our dad is a bad person. 
Can that be like their schism moment where the, the yeah, Frankensteins wake up? Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. All right, cool, yeah. I like this line art. I like these flat colors. And I like these new sketches we've added to the board. Yeah, do we, we have... Um... We have a Dracula supporting character. We have a Gilman supporting character. We have a Frankenstein supporting character. We have a Wolfman supporting character. Um, we, in uh, fact, I have believe... two Wolfmen. Yeah. Um, Invisible Man supporting character. The Invisible Man has a brother. And that's where the set... In return, Invisible Man returns. Vincent Price, he becomes the Invisible Man because Jack Griffin's brother had the formula. And then the Invisible Man who fights Nazis is either the grandson or the nephew of them. They say both sure. things over the course of the movie. So, like, the Invisible Man has a family we can draw from. Those are places sure. to go. But kind of the point of our Invisible Man was he's not a griffin. He's just a fucking dude. We could have another griffin come and fight the invisible man i don't know how much i like that idea i don't know i'm just i'm just saying things anything kicking around in your brain okay if the invisible man is just like kind of a dick that everybody hates and his thing is that he can be whoever he wants what if he does have a brother character or a nephew character or something like that Possibly one who even could get invisibility powers over the course of the franchise. Um, or, or, you know, invisibility curse. Um, and that guy is just, like, a pretty great guy that everybody generally likes. And isn't isn't that complicated either. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a more campy bit than I want the movies to be. But it's like, welcome to my dark abode the council of all darkness is going to i smell something different upon the wind invisible man who is this child you've brought into my home oh this is my nephew and then everyone just likes him he's real nice he brought like lollipops and a blood bag for dracula like, is this oh negative how did you find this my god and the mummy's like i like this kid he's, he's real nice. <laughs> yeah that's that's the vibe for sure well, this has been ex an extremely long episode. I'm ready to be wrapping it up. Yeah, how do we... We didn't do a fun fact of peace, right? How do we close this one out? Good question. I think we just... Do we just end it? Do we just, do we just get, cold I, end? Do we just, like, cold Very end right unceremoniously. <laughs> no, we have to... I mean, we've got our, we've got our normal ending rituals. Um, and now, instead of doing a fun fact of peace, we've instead done a bunch of waffling about, like, not being sure quite how to end it. Which I think has transitioned us into the ending state, where we can say that, hey, um, how's it going? Uh, thanks for listening to this whole enormous fucking thing. My name has been Amber Autumn, she, her. And my name's been Prince Devin, he, him. If you listened and liked it, please add us and tell us who you would fancast to some of our stuff. Genuinely, please tell us your fan castings of, of any of these characters. Well, this has been original podcast, Do Not Steal. Um, uh, Halloween special that we had a name for across the whole thing consistent branding join us next week when devin tries to get us to talk about professional wrestling but instead um we go back to our regularly scheduled programming um with something that uh, is much less gothic death note so that'll be fun I thought Death Note drops before we get into the Oh does shit you're right okay I think it chronologically does. Death Note drops before Okay in which case, the regularly scheduled programming next week is Earthsea. Yeah, get ready to Earthsea. And next week, 
in the future past, we'll be talking about Hades. A game in which you try in vain to reach the surface and reunite your family. A quest Zagreus is forever cursed to interk on. Just as I, Prince Devon of the Underworld, am forever beset in my Sisyphean task of monetizing our friendship. Give us money. That's the joke I close episodes out on. Bye, baby! For the record, um, when he says Hades, he means the next thing that we're recording, but... In terms of release order, it's going to be like another three months. The um, future past! Uh, anyway, um, goodbye, but like make it spooky. Like imagine a spooky goodbye. Good Goodbye! Ooh.